We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome back to, or not really welcome back, welcome to this new episode, Archaeo Animals. I'm Alex Patrick, and with me as always, Simona Falanga. And we are once again back in our mini series we've been doing for the past couple episodes, Time Warped, which is still a great title if you ask me. This is kind of a tragic episode for Simona as we are post Roman. They, they've gone. They've all gone. They've left. <laughs> How are you feeling, Simona? Now that we are, we we did your big episode, and um, we're beyond the Romans now. I feel I can just, you know, just like lie down and let you take it away. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, we were actually talking about it right before we started recording, and I figured we should probably talk about it on the episode, but post-Roman is a very tricky, weird word, isn't it? Yes, because it sort of sits in between. It's not quite the medieval period. I believe formerly was referred to as the Dark Ages. Please don't do that. No, don't use that. Don't do that. (laughs) Uh, So... uh, Believing, like in recent years, sort of the the generally accepted term is just the post-Roman period. At the same time, like for such a short time period, like you can break it up into sort of like, I guess, two sub periods because you so you have the time sort of right after the Romans, and then we'll get more into it later. But like the Saxon population sort of organizing into kingdoms and the Scandinavian populations coming in. So you have the Anglo-Saxon, yes, Anglo-Scandinavian period, which is sort of similar, but also quite different from the earlier part of the post-Roman period. So yes, no, it's a roller coaster of fun, but very, very interesting archaeology. Yeah, there's just a lot happening, to be completely honest. So, like, looking back, well, I mean, obviously we are looking back, we're archaeologists. Uh, <laughs> looking back at kind of, you know, the idea of it being post-Roman as a period, there's enough happening to kind of fill, say, a podcast episode. And that's exactly what we'll be doing. So, more or less, when we say post-Roman period, we mean everything from the Romans leaving Britannia and the uh, Norman conquest of 1066. Well, at, at least in sort of this part of the world. Because of, yes, of course, the start of the medieval period changes depending on which uh, part of the world you're in. <laughs> like even within the same continent in Italy, For example, I believe that the medieval period officially begins with the fall of the Roman Empire or the Western Roman Empire. 
which is, uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to feel so bad if I'm wrong, 476. I'm going to trust you. I trust B- you with BC, my life. BC, A.D., B.C. It's very confusing, folks. You got all these different letters coming at you. We got all these different groups. We're post, we're pre, I'm in the middle. Uh, I mean, we could clearly have done a, a whole podcast just on terminology and how confusing it can be. I mean, we could do one on uh, um, animal bone terminology. Oh, yeah, we probably could. <laughs> it's just about like how to use an audio medium to describe the actual term. Well, I guess we can use a very technical term. So like the, the distal epiphysis of uh, metapodials, which are usually referred refer to as the rolly bits. Rolly bits. Very, very concise terminology here at Archaeo Animals. But yeah, I mean, as we were just saying, you know, one of the complications with this period is there's a lot of different groups happening now. We're not necessarily looking at, I mean, not that we were ever kind of looking at one homogenous group when we're talking about these time periods, but at this point, there's a lot going on because obviously the Romans are leaving Britain. We have this power vacuum that's left. And obviously we now seeing different groups kind of vie for that power. It's just something I'm actually working on right now is writing about the Pictish up in Scotland, who are one of those, in at least in the part of Scotland that I work in, those are one of the groups, the main groups that are fighting, you know, these smaller Iron Age groups in particular at the time. So it's definitely very interesting for archaeologists <laughs> to have to go through all this, specifically where we're talking about, you know, we see Northwestern European populations like the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, they're all moving to the British Isles, settling largely in the east of England, and they're pushing the Britons westwards. And obviously that is very interesting to look at in the archaeological record. Yeah, um, absolutely. You do see, like, of course, shifts in in time, because these are we're going to call them for ease, uh, Saxon populations, you know, you'll see them convert to Christianity and they would organize themselves into kingdoms. And uh, and that's where the Scandinavians arrive, just, just to make it all a bit more fun as of the 8th century. So from there on, usually the period gets referred to as the Anglo-Scandinavian. Because you have Scandinavian populations coming in, in the form of organized raids to begin with. Later also as settlers, with, with some organized raiding here and there as well. It all culminating in 1066 with the biggest raid of them all. The Normans come over and just they just conquer Britain. Just flatten it. The Normans are kind of sort of descending from Scandinavians anyway. I mean, that's the thing I feel like, is that obviously you could technically kind of broad strokes, you know, categorize these groups. But realistically, you do have a lot of splintered groups kind of infighting and developing their own kind of communities at this time, which, again, is uh, very complicated for archaeologists who obviously... If it was up to if it was up to all of us to sort out the chronology of things, it would be very cut and dry. But that's not real life, is it? Especially when you have people conquering other people. Yeah, absolutely, because I mean, in terms of sort of the conquering populations, while you know there were very sort of distinct groups, I mean, in very very broad strokes, we're still talking about sort of 
Northern European populations. So in a way, a lot of the material culture is very similar. Initially, before sort of the Saxon, again, in inverted commas, convert to Christianity, the pantheon is very similar to that of Scandinavian populations. So, you know, they are very similar groups, but also different. And in the archaeological record, it's not always as easy to um, distinguish between the various groups, again, because they're on paper, they are so similar. And obviously, you also have to account for trade happening, even if they're necessarily vying for space and for power. They are still, obviously, you have that kind of, the trade going between the two. So you'll see some artifacts that you might categorize as, say, Saxon in places which aren't necessarily Saxon and so on. It's a hodgepodge of things, really. And I, I wonder if this more so than any other period. Do you know what I mean? I guess, but also in a way it's because we have a bit more to go by. True. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously a huge thing. Although, technically, it can be considered prehistoric. That, that, that's the in, one of the interesting things about it. I mean, at, at least, uh, you know, up until the 8th century, it, it is sort of reverting back to prehistory. And of course, like, I mean, that's strictly in a sense that there is a lack of written record that was left behind. So in a way, it once become sort of very Iron Age-like in the way like, okay, what's <laughs> going on here? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, especially because, I mean, I know we kind of had this conversation in the earlier episodes, but prehistory as a term itself is very fluctuating isn't necessarily cut and dry i mean like my my phd thesis is technically called later prehistoric rituals and rites but i go all the way up until the post medieval but you know you could probably claim like 90% of what i do is prehistory but i mean that also brings us into the kind of, you know, word of caution we've been doing in every episode but maybe this episode even more so than the other ones it's kind of worth saying again, these are all conventional terms to identify a time period. And frankly, a lot of this, this warning can also be applied to the names of groups and cultures, because obviously it isn't necessarily as cut and dry as we'd like it to be or as what we're probably kind of conveying to you. Yeah. And, and also like the, the important thing as well is that we've in a way decided to call these populations <laughs> the Saxons, the Angles and the Jutes. Not necessarily maybe what they call themselves or what they want them to be called. No, not really. I mean, to be honest, as especially as someone, I mean, I guess you have this a similar case as people who are not from Britain. It, I feel like it's almost incre an increased amount of confusion because obviously, at least in America, we did not learn any of this stuff. So even though I've been, you know, practicing archaeology here in the UK for almost 10 years like closer to six, I still can get very confused at this period. It's a lot of uh, terms, but yes, as we said, it's all quite arbitrary and it's for ease of to identify a population or a time period. Of course, you know, we've said in the sixth century, sort of what is known as sort of the migration period, we see all these Northwestern Germanic, largely populations coming in, but it's not like, oh, it's a sixth century. Everyone here is Saxon. Um, <laughs> And then at one point, sort of later on, sort of in the 7th, 8th century, be like, oh, we're all Christian now. Because these would have been very gradual events. 
And indeed, uh, the population that I keep referring to as Saxons were actually several populations, as you said earlier, just ma- mainly, again, Northwestern European. But again, Frees, we do tend to say Saxon when we talk about the time period. Similar to that, we also have, you know, the Vikings being kind of a, a catch-all word for the Scandinavian populations that are coming across, because obviously it would be uh, kind of annoying to keep saying Scandinavian seafaring groups over and over and over again. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, 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 not technically correct. We might slip a few Viking here and there. It's it's interesting as well, because the other thing that I've always kind of seen, especially when I was doing my undergraduate, I was considering going into what is referred to as Viking Age archaeology is, you know, a lot of times they're also just kind of referred to as the Norse. And it's like, well, kind of, sort of. If they were from Norway, then yes. Yeah, some of them were. So it was. But like, I remember doing a lot of research and finding a lot of papers that are just strip referring to all Scandinavian populations that were coming across as the Norse. And it's, it is interesting to kind of see the ways we ultimately end up creating these catch-all terms. And, you know, I think this whole series is a great kind of example of how we do that and how it both helps and hurts archaeology and history in general. Yeah, because I guess maybe I know in the public imagination, maybe like Norwegian is the first one that comes to mind for reasons. Yeah. Even though like I think a lot of the groups that were in Britain, at least, I'm pretty sure they were Danish, a fair few of them, but also Norwegian and probably some Swedish in there. Why not? Just all of them. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it it, it is a, just something that is useful in the long run, because at the end of the day, we are working with huge amounts of basically data. And I know we kind of talked about this when we were doing our later prehistoric episode, but even as these periods get smaller, it is still like a massive amount of time, amount of events that are occurring that we're kind of just smushing down into a single period. You said we also have the added difficulty that up until, I guess, the time where the the Honorable Bede came along with his ecclesiastical history of the English people. We have no written record. Is Bede going to be a new character in our show? <laughs> be there with Pliny, just Pliny Bede. Pliny and, well, I can't say the name of that beetle. You have to say it. Sithophilus Granarius. Yeah, I'm never going to say that, but... <laughs> and then she finds out she's mispronounced it all these episodes. I, again, I trust you with this, uh, but I think we're we're making a small kind of team, like like our own time team, but it's just <laughs> these characters. Just with, with, with historical figures that like to write about stuff. You mean two historical figures and then one uh, grain weevil? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> dressed as a Roman general. I can't imagine any time team being worse. <laughs> hey, hey I, I'm, I'm seeing it. The, the animated series, oh. like autoconclusive episodes, throw some paranormal in there. And there's, I don't know, like some creature just rising, some curse. And then, you know, you have Bede, Bliny and Sidophilus Garnatius. Well, I mean, you do, you have a bit of ritual every episode. Uh, each episode takes place in a different time period, which gets a little confusing after a while. Yeah, I think we actually, we, we've got a series there. 
it could be like quantum leap where it doesn't really matter like if it's a different time period if you work it into the narrative you know they could be using they could be like just time traveling i don't know what would they actually be doing though overarching storyline we need to work on this but probably outside of the show the Ocetophilus Granarius used to be an actual like a human Roman general and then because of a curse he got turned into a beetle so the need to find clues in various time periods so he could have his human form back uh, that's karma you see yeah I think Scott Bakula would do it too if anyone knows Scott Bakula who's listening to this podcast please get let us get in contact with him we have a great idea for him to do if not a comic strip will do yeah, we can also do a comic strip. But we need to have Scott Bakula's likeness if we're going to do a whole Quantum Leap thing. <laughs> Simona, do you even know who Scott Bakula is? No. Okay, I'll tell you about it during the break. <laughs> Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com and use the code ANIMALS. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back on this episode of Archeo Animals. Again, we're carrying on with our Time Warped mini-series covering the post-Roman period. For those who missed the earlier bit, um, by post-Roman, we mean everything sort of from the Romans leaving Britain to the Norman conquest of 1066. Now, I guess we'll talk some more about the actual animal bones since we're a zoo archaeology podcast. Yeah, I realized that while we were doing the first part. <laughs> Just noticed, I was like, oh, we never specifically mentioned that this is a zoo archaeology podcast that is talking about the zoo archaeology of the post-Roman period, not necessarily just the fact that terminology is weird and that the post-Roman period is very confusing. There were animals. Yes, there were animals first, and then they became bones. Yeah, but I feel like that for this miniseries, you do kind of need to devote a section talking more about the time period because we have a, a very varied audience, some from within the profession and some who aren't. Yeah, you need that context, I think, especially because obviously the main theme we've got going with this 
miniseries is how zoo archaeology changes from period to period. And obviously, sometimes it's a little bit different. Sometimes it's not necessarily different at all. But, you know, we have these trends that we can see through these periods. And that's one of the tools that helps us as archaeologists in terms of figuring out what's happening. And I mean, the post-Roman period is kind of interesting in a way that it's kind of not interesting when it comes to zooarchaeology. I mean, to be fair, the Roman period, you have a lot to talk about with regards to, you know, introductions. The Romans are introducing species left and right, uh, (laughs) and then they kind of leave, and then those animals are just kind of left here, huh? Fend for yourselves. (laughs) Bye. We're done here. (laughs) There's one guy who is like, "Are are we taking the fallow deer with us when we go back? And they're like, no, leave them. Leave them. We don't have room. You'll be a reminder of what they lost. <laughs> what about the rabbits? Do we take the rabbits back? No. <laughs> they they can have them. This is what happens. As two archaeologists, this is our professional opinion. This is literally what happened. Again, there's some things that don't necessarily change. And I feel like in a lot of ways, that's kind of just, you know, the, the crafts and industries that are here. And we don't necessarily see huge changes because obviously in the late, the earlier periods, you're obviously seeing huge changes in industry because of the development of certain technologies and certain advances in how they approach certain craftsmanship. Yeah, the crafts and industries would have been largely the same. Of course, the way these were carried out would have shifted slightly because, you know, when we talk about industries, you would have been the same, you know, like during this period, people were weaving. But guess what? So they were in the Roman period and the Iron Age period. Of course, well, things will change, uh, such as I don't know the, the shape of the loom weights. In the Iron Age, they like them a bit more triangular. The Saxons, they're all about donuts. <laughs> so what's a donut? I don't know. Spoiler. You know what? I can appreciate that. I too am mostly into donuts and donut-shaped things. Mostly donuts again. And again, yeah, metalworking again. Uh, they did that before. <laughs> uh, and again, like bone working, antler working. Again, we see that across all time periods. But of course, what gets produced changes somewhat. So one bit of bone working that I guess becomes especially prevalent in the Saxon and especially as the Scandinavians come along, uh, the production of bone combs. Yes, So you get from the more simple ones where you just get your bone plate and you carve your teeth into it to the, I believe they're called composite ones, where you'd have sort of two bars Mm -hmm, made out of bone and then the teeth would actually be plates. So it'd be like, well, not one tooth at a time, but be like a chunk of teeth on a singular plate that will be slotted onto those like two sort of rectangular plates and secured with rivets. Mm-hmm. That, of course, mainly being due to the fact that, yeah, bones are expensive. Combs made out of bone and uh, more precious material like, you know, whale ivory or antler, yeah. they're expensive to make. So, of course, if you, then you snap a tooth, what then? you got to chuck the whole thing or you could just replace the plate. Yeah, and I think especially when we're talking about bone working, I mean, this is the, I think this is the case across most of the, the crafts and industries, but I think we're starting to see more intricacy as obviously the technology gets better, the material gets better, they're able to source material out elsewhere. Uh, you know, these trade routes get a bit 
larger, a bit more out there, you're able to create more intricate and, you know, this specifically thinking about Saxon type or, or, you know, Viking type, you know, quote unquote, Viking type of artifacts, you get very intricate especially with the bone combs. I've seen so many really intricate combs. Designs, yeah. And I think, sorry, autocorrection. I just, re- <laughs> just realised that I said whale ivory, which I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I Just ivory. I meant ivory. Didn't even notice. <laughs> just- <laughs> Did I say that? Just ivory. But, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure whether there's actually evidence of ivory being used in... That probably is. I mean... There is. I'm not necessarily sure in Britain specific. I know, however, we do see that in parts of Scotland, obviously up up north, because, you know, closer to where the the resources would be. But um, this is going to hurt my brain now trying to think about it. (laughs) But... But probably Scandinavia, I mean, they were trading with everyone. So That's true, yeah. I mean, again, that's the other thing. It's something we obviously saw in the last period we covered. But, you know, you're you're seeing, like, this, still kind of seeing that prevalence, not only prevalence, but, like, the appearance of, quote-unquote, exotic materials, materials that wouldn't necessarily be, you know, local. And that is obviously adding to that more intricate, material culture that we have in this period. And I promise there, there are animals. I mean, we were talking about bone, but as even if, you know, these crafts and industries are somewhat the same as they were from the last period, we are seeing some change in animal husbandry. I guess the, what for me anyway, sort of like what's less interesting about Roman zoo archaeology is how everything is sort of very specialised and systemic and organised, yeah. so like anything revolving, <laughs> involving food production. So it would have uh, revolved around set markets and an infrastructure which has then just ceased to exist as the Romans left. Yeah. But of course, you know, like... Uh, that doesn't mean that it all sort of changes, like it gets turned upside down, because like you do see continuity. Because of course, you would yeah. have been sort of like the infrastructure would have been linked again to the more Romanized settlements, mm. which you know they would have collapsed as the Romans left. But of course, we're forgetting about many, many, many native settlements around the British Isles that would have pretty much just carried on as they did before. Yeah. Some of these people probably been the same that would have kept doing the same thing even when the Romans were about. <laughs> but like, oh, so there's Romans here. Yeah, okay, cool, fair enough. I'll just go, you know, like plough my field. So in a way, like we do see continuity, Romano-British patterns being perpetrated as well as late Iron Age patterns in some instances. And in a way, yeah. like, I, I guess also because the sort of the prehistoric nature of this period, it, it does almost seems like something you're reverting to the Iron Age in a way. Like I know, like strictly non-animal bone related, mm-hmm. with like pottery production, because we sort of we go back. You know, we had like some of the very sort of specialized Roman kilns and the variety of vessels that were produced, and then sort of when they left, it sort of went back to sort of clam kiln firing of very sort of utilitarian looking vessels. I mean, you do see some nicer ones as well. And as time goes by, you do tend to see sort of better fired material. But yeah, you do see sort of that reverting 
not necessarily back, but just like, yeah, who cares about the fancy molded bit of samian? I'm just going to like do me a coil pot. Yeah, I mean, there's something very interesting. And again, I'm, I'm mostly speaking from Scotland because that's where I, I mostly do my research. But there is something very interesting and strange happening, especially kind of from b- between that like late Iron Age, like the very end of the Iron Age, uh, the Roman Iron Age particularly, into this post-Roman period where you're kind of seeing a bit of a... Not even like reminiscing, but like a, a return to a lot of Iron Age sites in particular. So like in Scotland, you see a lot of reuse of Iron Age sites or, or even, you know, late Bronze Age, early Bronze Age sites. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with this change in social structure and change in what's happening, you know, socially and culturally in that, you know, this is the way people kind of returned. It's almost a return to your roots type of situation, I feel like, where how best to strengthen these community bonds, especially when, you know, all this other nonsense is happening around you, then to return to the kind of early Iron Age type of, you know, cultural traditions and things like that. So I think that it's some, it must be some of that in terms of, you know, it is like we we said at the beginning, it is a power vacuum happening and political upheaval and social upheaval is going to have a knockdown effect and really, you know, hit even say these, you know, native settlements that aren't necessarily as affected at some other settlements. So, yeah, you know, it's not and it's also not like the Romans took everything with them when they left. Obviously, as you were just saying, you know, things are still slightly Romanized. And also we still have the kind of material culture, which is being put to use in one way or the other. You know, you start seeing like the Roman coin hoards, redeposition of Roman pottery shirts. It's a whole mess. (laughs) I think there's a whole series of PhDs on uh, reusing of like Roman material culture by the Saxons. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm kind of going through it now, so. Because <laughs> no, I guess, well, 13 minutes into it. Um, <laughs> what about, what about the, the animals that were recovered? Uh, I guess to, to address the earlier points, I mean, the Romans probably did leave the rabbits and they did leave the fallow deer. Although, I don't think the fallow deer is extremely common if not rare during this time yeah maybe because <laughs> i think that the general consensus now seems to be that of course you know we have uh, the fallow deer that we have in the country what in the british isles today do not descend from the ones that the romans introduced so it is presumed that the romans introduced the fallow deer and then it sort of died out as they left and was then reintroduced a second time by the Normans. <laughs> just love that fallow deer. Can't blame them. Yeah, just like yeah, the Normans as well. But I thought that this is what we hunt in France. So fallow deer. But we have we have roe deer and, and red deer. No good fallow deer. Could be worse. Yeah. But uh, in terms of main domesticates, uh, we do tend to largely see mixed economies. Yeah. Which, again, it is true for a lot. I mean, it gets a bit more specialised in the Roman period, but it, it does tend to be sort of pretty much the same across the board. The animals will tend to be multifunctional. So, like, the uh, sheep would be kept for dairy, they'll be kept for meat and for their wool. Cattle will be kept for both milk and meat. 
and uh, of course, but mixed economies meaning sort of herding and agriculture, sort of keeping livestock and, and raising crop sort of at the same time. So we do tend to see that in the first instance, at least. So in, what's interesting about sort of this time period is that we do see some more introductions to the British Isles. Mm-hmm. Now, like they're not as, um, I guess, as fancy as the Roman introductions because they don't tend to be different <laughs> species altogether, yeah. but more like different breeds of uh, domesticates, which the Roman also did, but who's keeping scores? So really our podcast. Like <laughs> the, um, the Vikings in particular uh, introduced several short-tailed sheep breeds whose descendants you actually still see in Britain today. And in a way, they've been here so long that uh, they're now considered native British breeds. <laughs> I mean, good examples of that would be like all like the various Hebridean breeds, uh, as well as the, I'm not going to pronounce this properly, the Manx Luden. Is that how you pronounce that? Louden? Luden? I wouldn't even have La- tried that. <laughs> so more power to um, you. <laughs> but for those of you who have never seen them, they, they look quite, quite funky because they have sort of multiple horns. So they yeah. have like, you know, like the some will have, you know, None. Some will have just the one. I've seen that as well. But usually it'll be like between like four and six horns. They're quite cool. I think they've got a small flock at Butzer Ancient Farm. They do, yeah. Which, uh, for those of you who don't know it, it's uh, an experimental archaeology farm in the south of Britain, which also, of course, keep ancient breeds, as you'd expect. So, yeah, you can see some of those there. And then there's another interesting breed that has been this believed to have been introduced by viking settlers though not in this country i thought I'd spice it up a bit Ooh. it's actually an introduction to iceland and that's the icelandic leader sheep <laughs> that's such a good name um, oh wow and, a- <laughs> and apparently the leader sheep and it's in the name we'll get to that it for for the longest time, it was actually considered a subspecies because of how clever it is. Wow. So now while, like, you know, it's meat utility, I mean, it's it's nothing out of the order. I mean, it's not brilliant, but it, it's okay, I guess. But this sheep was mainly kept because, like, it's a, a very intelligent breed and you would be kept amongst a flock, you know, necessarily, no, not necessarily the same breed or, like, other breed of sheep because of its ability to protect the flock. And even the shepherd himself at times. So like, especially sort of facing extreme weather conditions, which I'm, so I suppose you would get in Iceland, where it has been known to lead both sheep and shepherds to safety. Huh. Okay. So, you know, cause that's not as needed anymore. I guess that ability to protect flock and shepherd, cause of course we know we have developed the technology to sort of withstand the, weather and you don't have to be out in all seasons and well, uh, not all of us to be fair <laughs> in in this part of the world and of course you know like there's only so much you need to guard your flock in this country because <laughs> we've obliterated all the predators that were here once so and pigs are still high status because they're so annoying to keep and i think that's it for that so i think we'll we'll take a break and then we will get to the case studies Woo! Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back with Archaeo Animals. We are talking about the zooarchaeology of the post-Roman period as part of our larger time warped mini series. I almost forgot the name of the mini series, which would be wild because it's just it's just time warped. And you came up with it. I know that's really sad. But more importantly, it's our case studies. Again, our self-identified best part of the podcast. <laughs> no one's called us out on it, so I'm going to keep saying that. Absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. Yeah, it's True. We're actually going to start uh, kind of close to where I am now with uh, Coppergate, York, which surprisingly, despite living not that far away from York itself, I've never actually been to the, the Jorvik Center. Yeah, I've only been the once. I, I, so I haven't really seen any of this. I've, I've been there the once. Like, uh, unfortunately, I think they've been struggling with floods for quite a, like, a, a few times. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I should, I should probably go at some point. It's really not that far from me. But yeah, I think when I first moved here, uh, it got hit with floods pretty badly and was closed for a bit. But it's, uh, from what I've heard, sounds really go- cool. So if you're in the area, if you can eventually travel safely, definitely go visit. But it's not necessarily the Yorvik Center we're talking about for this case study. It's a site from York that I believe the Yorvik Center has on display, which is Coppergate. And it was excavated in 1972. And it's mostly Viking Age material. And it's most specifically known for how well-preserved the material is. We a rare thing for a lot of archaeological sites we actually get to see and still have textiles and timber as well as very you know minuscule insect remains and plant remains and animal remains so basically a environmental archaeologist's dream (laughs) right there and it the excavation went on from 1976 to 1981. And as I said, you can see a lot of this material at the Jorvik Viking Center. And obviously, most of the zooarchaeology that we're kind of going to talk about in this little section is your midden material. But I feel like we don't talk much about midden material on this podcast. No, because it's something like... Cause- I don't know, by midden material, do we mean sort of waste that is built up, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is mostly food waste that we're talking about here. Five tons of faunal bones, which honestly gives me an anxiety attack to think about. Imagine quantifying that. No, that's my nightmare. I know I said that this place is an environmental archaeologist's dream, but actually it's a zooarchaeologist's nightmare, and I'm going to start having recurring nightmares about being sat down in a lab and they just wheel over five tons of animal bone and they say, do this. And then I cry. Gonna need some bigger scales. Oh, gosh. And But yeah, no, I think admittedly we don't talk about them as much because I think you tend to find them more in urban sites as mm-hmm. opposed to rural not because they wouldn't have had middens because the way the archaeology is carried out in urban you sort of have all these sort of structures and floor surfaces pretty much on top of each other yeah so you'll be able as you go down to sort of find the positive feature of the midden 
but then because of the way it's done in rural where you sort of you strip down the topsoil yeah. and the subsoil so then like, if there would have been a midden you would have been sort of into what is now our topsoil and subsoil and it would have probably been plowed away a long time ago yeah that's interesting because i only just realized it as you know we're obviously doing this section you know obviously you know we are a podcast we are uh, allegedly both entertaining and educating edutainment as they say and you know we do tend to pick out especially when we do our case studies the more well as glamorous as you get into archaeology and obviously midden material is very important but also maybe not necessarily the most glamorous thing as say you know the the pet cemeteries in uh, ancient egypt or whatever no, but it, it all adds up to the evidence because ultimately the, the rubbish will tell you more about the people. Yeah, true. I mean, obviously you can't, you know, archaeology of the mundane, you, you absolutely need it. Just, I guess it doesn't, I don't know how it translates to trying to entertain the masses. And speaking of entertaining the masses, there also seems to be a lot of oyster shells, which I don't know about you, I can't really talk about because I don't really do that <laughs> i mean oyster shells are very popular across the board you do see them in amount in the roman period you yes. do kind of see them beforehand as well they're just a cheap and food source that is fairly easy to get hold of yeah think like i'm not too knowledgeable on it but i'm sure that like, you can tell so you do see oyster shells also mussels and like you can tell sort of if they're sort of marine or sea or freshwater Yes, you can. <laughs> so then that you can get an inference on, uh, you know, how, if they've traded them or if it was a local resource, you know, how they've gone about acquiring it. Yeah, there's a whole, I mean, you know, this is not to dismiss. Like, I know a, a couple of colleagues who specifically do shell work, and it is incredible how much material you can get out of shells, which is something that I would ignore as a zooarchaeologist with very little patience. I mean, you do see it a lot, especially when you're, again, working with middens. But obviously, it's not just about oyster shells here. Yes, we are now the oyster shell podcast. No, (laughs) this is my nightmare. (laughs) But but usually in archaeological sites, you'll get like just two different types. There's really two main types you need to distinguish between. It's okay. It's okay. I'm okay now. Maybe then we can talk about more craftsmanship stuff, which is slightly more interesting. Again, no offense to our shell specialists. Just alienating everyone. First it's the fish, now it's shell specialists. I don't mean to do it. I'm just, I can't, my brain isn't like formed enough to figure out how to do any of that stuff. So I'm jealous, really. But this is something I can do. And that's worked animal remains. And luckily, Coppergate has a lot of really interesting stuff. So one of the, the more notable artifacts that were found is a gaming board, which had pieces made from walrus ivory, something that we talked about and couldn't remember. Yeah, no, no it was not in our notes. W- w- whale ivory. <laughs> not whale. <laughs> so it's likely imported from Scandinavia or it's scavenged from washed up walrus or technically could be whale. Did you do you get ivory from whale? I believe you can from uh, teethies. <laughs> cool. Okay, so I wasn't I wasn't completely wrong earlier. That's fine. No, I don't think so. Unless I'm wrong, which is very possible. 
Anyway, we also had uh, calf leather sheaves for swords, which again, like we were talking about earlier in the episode, you get that very intricate carving and decoration, or no, just intricate decoration here. You do get intricate carving, however, in the antler combs that they found, which again ties into what we were talking about in the beginning with regards to, you know, Antler combs have always been kind of made, but now they're being made slightly nicer. And I think my favorite find is the ice skates, which were made from horse and cattle bones, which are polished to be used as the blade, um, which I know is uh, something you kind of found, find commonly in Scandinavian settlements from around this time. They're just so cool. That, that's interesting now, because I've seen at a museum, I'm forgetting where, Ice skates made out of horse bones that were actually post-medieval. Oh, that is interesting. I can't remember what century, but it was the, it was the metapodials. Mm. It was horse metapodials. In the, that makes in the, sense. On the display, they interpreted them as ice skates. So I guess that's sort of carried on. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I mostly associate it with like Viking Age because, again, like I, I used to do Viking Age archaeology. And this is something you also see in like later on in uh, settlements in Iceland, these kind of really interesting animal bone ice skates. And it's, it, it's really cool to see that, that they've made it as far as York. Um, it's a really interesting site because these are, you know, very intricate worked items that are ultimately actually not as you know unusual they're just very mundane items that are made of animal bone uh, and remains which are cool well that's what i like the, the archaeology of the mundane yeah i do like that i mean listen we love ritual at this podcast but sometimes you just kind of want to sit back get cozy and enjoy some archaeology of the mundane Ritual is just scary and confusing. I mean, a lot of archaeology is scary and confusing. Even even a horse ice skate? I mean, maybe. I don't know. But speaking of more cozy, mundane, we should probably go to our next case study, which is, I mean, I guess it's probably cozy. It's a domestic site, settlement. Second case study is about West Stowe. Yes. I mean, they have uh, reconstructed some of the buildings, which uh, I'm told are quite cozy when you like when you get a fire going in the hearth in the middle. So, yeah, let's explore the, the cozy, cozy site of West Stowe, also known as one of the most important early Saxon settlements to be excavated in Britain. And what was so good about it is like like the site was nearly intact and there mm. were no later phases of occupation afterwards. So in a way, because usually, so if you get, you know, like an Iron Age settlement and a Roman on top of it, like the Roman will normally just trash whatever's underneath. Yeah. you'll cut through <laughs> all the old Iron Age features. And of course, you get that a lot in, in urban archaeology where everything is just trashing everything just on top of each other. Uh, but not with Stowe. Once the Saxons, again, Saxons, inverted commas, left, that was that. There was no later occupation following sort of that period. The site, I mean, it was uh, full of buildings because they've recovered a total of uh, 70 SFBs and seven halls. Uh, now, SFB, I <laughs> can never remember 100% what it stands for, is if it's sunken feature building or sunken floor building, or that's usually what they're known as in this country, although they do have, I think the first were identified in Germany, so there is sort of a German name for them, which I cannot pronounce, so I'm not going <laughs> to 
but they were sort of the your box standard sort of Saxon dwelling, which was is usually a circular feature and a, a depression in the ground. So it's almost like a sort of fairly sort of wide and shallow pit. Except it's yeah, it's not a pit. It would have been part of the uh, of the Saxon dwelling hmm. and seven halls. So. As I said before, some of the buildings have since been reconstructed and you can actually visit them as the Westow is now an experimental archaeology farm, much like Butzer, which th- th- we've described in the earlier settlement. Not unlike Coppergate, you do find a fair bit of bone working, a bone and antler working at Westow. So specifically made of antler, they have recovered some very sort of beautifully preserved combs. Of course, you get evidence for your weaving, so that'll probably be in the form of a previously mentioned donut-shaped loom weights. And you do get pottery production as well. Okay, not animal bone related. So they were producing pottery at Westo, and they've actually recovered sort of a a rare antler pottery stamp. Wow. Which is quite cool. Yeah. I mean, I've literally never heard of that prior to doing this episode. No, for those who have not heard of pottery stamps before, I mean, you do tend to see them mostly in the Roman period, where <laughs> sort of um, a potter would normally, you know, it, we would have their own stamp with which they'd be marking their own work. You, you see that with potters today. Yeah, of course. Purpose. But not antler. <laughs> made out of antler. Uh, I'm not sure what, norm- what they're normally made of the stamps in all fairness. So I just know like how useful they can be, like especially in the Roman period, because I saw they tend to be like, we have sort of developed almost like a database for the lack of a better word of all the various sort of stamps and who they pertain to. So it's easy to sort of like, well, easy. You can sort of geographically locate sort of where the pot has been made looking at the stamp. Hmm. So they're quite useful in that sense. Yeah, Westow was an antler one. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I I knew kind of about like the idea of pottery stamps. I just never really thought of. Obviously, you could use something like antler or some kind of animal product to make a, a pottery stamp. But yeah, no, that's really cool. I've been like, so I've not seen photos of the actual artifact, but uh, I mean, bone and antler working is difficult on a good day, but yeah. trying to carve like. A pottery stamp on a piece of antler because it'd have to be something quite quite small. Yes, uh, to be able to stamp the base of a pot. So try to have any sort of pattern or writing just carved into antler like that. Like, how many times did you have to soak that? Try <laughs> uh, and get that in. There's a painstaking work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's again, it's a nice kind of bookend this at least using this site as a case study is a nice bookend to kind of what we've been talking about this whole episode which is you know overall we are seeing you know very kind of the mastery of certain crafts you know and they're becoming more intricate and even if they're necessarily not changing much in terms of what they're doing they're finding new ways to kind of create this very intricate work that's going to continue on to our you know the, the medieval period. Westo is a great example of that with the antler stamps. I guess just uh, briefly about the bulk animal bone that was recovered. <laughs> the um, other stuff. <laughs> I mean, they've had a uh, 180,000 animal oh, bones. That's so um, many. <laughs> so imagine Oof. how many of those are small fragments, unidentified, no! small to medium mammal. Uh, oh. But it, it does give us a nice picture of early Saxon animal hum- 
husbandry and industry, to be fair. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a general trend, once the farmers sort of been properly established, we see a decrease in the remains of pig and an increase in the numbers of cattle and sheep. Oh, okay. But, yeah, and I get to be fair, like <laughs> pigs are not the most economical thing to keep. Because in a way, you can feed it just about anything, or I guess you, you could back in the day. <laughs> It only gives you meat and it doesn't really give you anything else until up until the point you butcher it. So you're just yep. like feeding it and feeding it and feeding it and feeding it. Yeah. So that's a, a thing that remains consistent. Uh, regardless of change, the pig remains. <laughs> the pig will eat all of your food. Yeah, big mood. And um, I think that's a good way to end, <laughs> end this episode. As always... You can find us at Archeo Animals on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook. We are also on the Archaeology Podcast Network website. If you want to share our stuff to other people, you know, recommend us to loads of adoring fans or whatever. Yeah, if you want to make yeah, the, make that comic strip about uh, the adventures of Pete, uh, Pete, Pete, <laughs> Bede, Bede, Pliny, and Cetophilus Granarius. Yeah, and if you're Scott Bakula and you want to contact us, we can talk about that, uh, you know, that TV series, let us know. And um, as always, this has been Alex Fitzpatrick. And Simona Falanga. See ya next time. Bye. Listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts, and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Laura Johnson and Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Well.